For the last few months, we've been updating you once a week with some relevant science news that someone on our team at Science for Everyone has been doing research into. But have you ever wondered what's going on that we're not talking about? Well, so do we. Today marks the first episode in a new series, The Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news that you didn't know you needed. I'm Sam Marchetti. And I'm Sanishray Rajendran. And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from squirrels to monkeys and life on Mars in another discussion on the sidelines. You know how like in shows, whenever you have like a character falling asleep for 10 days, they come out as like a skeleton and lose all this weight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, have you ever wondered how come like squirrels don't do that? Like any animal that goes into hibernation, like especially squirrels, they come out bulked up. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, isn't it? They do come out pretty bulked up. Are they like sleep eating? Actually, so you know how like in order to build your muscles, you need nitrogen. So we need to eat a lot of food with nitrogen in it. And that's how you bulk up. Okay. But in squirrels, they don't actually eat because they're too sleepy throughout the winter and they're not consuming food. Right? Yeah. So what happens is that in their gut, there's actually this special microbiome, the gut microbiome there that uses the nitrogen in urea to convert it into nitrogen that's usable to, for them to bulk up. So even if they go to bed, they're still building up muscles by the end of winter. From their own urea? Yeah, and that all happens in their gut microbiome, like I said earlier. So apparently there was this researcher from University of Wisconsin-Madison where their team decided to, you know what, let's inject some urea that had like labeled nitrogen into the squirrels to see what is going on. So what happened was that they saw that the nitrogen that they have labeled somehow ended up in the squirrels muscles, liver and like a few other organs. And then they decided to, you know what, let's inject them with antimicrobial stuff so that their microbiome completely collapses. And they saw a decrease in their muscle mass. So they decided to like study the microbiome inside the gut instead. And what they find was that since these bacteria is in a stressful environment, so that means like they're not getting food and they can't survive without like a constant supply of nutrition. So in order to survive, they decided to focus all their energy in breaking down urea to get nitrogen. So whatever they have broken down into nitrogen and used up, the leftover is being left to the squirrel to do whatever they want. And that's how they end up with a bulked up muscles. So just to be clear, we're talking urea like the building block of pee. Yes, pretty so much. Squirrels, so squirrels are basically eating their own pee. Well, from the inside out, they're from technically the not, out, they're not. They're not like actually eating it, but they're like they're metabolizing it. Exactly. Now, or like a microbiome is, I guess. But but yeah, no, this is all fun and games. But like, what they're hoping to do from this is that somehow isolate this microbiome and eventually use it in humans. Because like, you know how like as you get older, you have like increased muscle dystrophy, so your muscles start breaking down when you're aging. Oh. So if they find a way to somehow harness this bacteria or like transform it to use it in humans, we can like find ways to prevent or reduce muscle dystrophy, basically. That's pretty cool. What the heck? Squirrels like basically digesting their own pee is going to help us solve muscular dystrophy in the elderly. That's mm -hmm. insane. 
Okay, okay. So we're on the topic of we're on the topic of animals. I got one for you. Have you ever heard of a macaque monkey? Well, I heard of monkeys, but never macaques. Okay, so uh, macaque monkeys. I I'm not entirely 100 percent sure like what the actual extent <laughs> of their range is. I know I went to China a few years ago, so I saw them in uh, like southeastern China area. There's macaque monkeys there. There's two big populations of macaque monkeys in Japan. Okay. okay. 70 years since the last time there has been a female leader of one of these two troops. Oh, is it common for them to have female leaders? No, it's not common at all. So very recently, like within the last year, okay? So last April, this nine-year-old female monkey named Yake, okay? She beat up her mother to become the alpha female of oh one gosh. of the troops, which is like 667 monkeys large. So... I don't know. I guess her mother was the alpha and she just decided to beat up her mother to take the female alpha position. At that point, that's usually when most females just like stop kind of try, you know, usually they're like pretty content with being the alpha female. Not Yake. Okay. Yake goes on and just challenges Sanchu, who's this 31 year old alpha male. And this was like a couple months later. This was in June uh, 2021. Oh my God. And then beat him. And so, so Sanchu basically backed down and just kind of let her become the alpha. Oh my god, uh, why? What happened? I wonder what prompted that. She's very aggressive. Yake is a very aggressive monkey. So anyway, now she's the, the alpha, the first female alpha of this troop in 70 years. She gets to hang out in the hot springs all day. That's like a pretty big thing with the macaque monkeys, like they hang out in hot springs. Um, <laughs> and she always eats first. Oh my god, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> yeah, and she also she also um she walks around with her tail up in the air, which is something that's like uh, apparently super uncommon for female monkeys. Okay, anyway, so the sad part is it might be a little bit short lived her leadership, um, because there are some other males that might get a little bit aggressive and try to like fight her and take over her position, especially during breeding season, which starts in like March. Um, <laughs> and there's one male in particular, so like just. Take one guess what the relationship was between this specific male monkey and oh, the Yake. relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is it her brother? Not quite. Not quite. So Yake has had a um a very interesting romantic life. Okay. Ooh. So a while ago she had a mate, um, or like a potential mate. His name was Goro. Um, okay. What, what do you think? What do you think Goro Goro's moves were? Oh my god, was he like the alpha male at that time? No, he wasn't the alpha male. He was just like another male monkey. But you know what he did to make her like, you know, be into him? He bit her in the face. Oh, my God. He bit How her in the face. Romantic yeah. And then researchers like the people observing EK noticed that her, her butt turned red, which is like the classic signal of like, you know, I want to mate with this this other monkey. Oh, my so God. That was Goro. OK, then since EK got like in charge, now Goro doesn't really like care about her. Like he seems very <laughs> uninterested in her. Um, but this other monkey named Luffy is super into her. Okay, so now there's like a little love triangle going on. We got like Yake, Goro, and then Luffy. So Yake oh wants God, Goro, so and Luffy wants Yake. But Yake is scared of Luffy. Oh, why? She's very. She seems a little bit uh, scared of him. She does this kind of like fear grimace when he shows up. Um, so researchers are kind of thinking that Luffy could overtake her if he gets kind of aggressive during the next breeding season um yeah oh my god i i don't know it feels like you might all kind of like let her take the reins longer you think, you think he's just gonna let her so that he can mate with her i hope so I don't know. well this is the thing right we're talking about this like a female leader as if it's abnormal 
But there's this article from a researcher named uh, Yukimaro Sugiyama, uh, mm-hmm. who studied primates for 62 years. Um, and basically, this article that they put out said abnormal behavior isn't really all that abnormal, um, especially in monkey troops, because these hierarchies are really artificially exaggerated by artificially concentrated food sources. So, like when we're studying monkeys in like you know mm-hmm. ideal environments, right? Um, oh, so when we see like abnormal behaviors. They're actually things that uh, Yukimaru has observed a few times over over her years studying primates. Uh, so COVID, right? Okay. I I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh my you, god, no! I, this is the first time. COVID. Okay, so there's a, there's a bit of an issue that's been going on for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Pandemic. Um, COVID. So when you think about COVID, if you thought about getting infected with COVID, where do you think it like where do you think it hits you when the virus goes in? What like what part of your body is like first thing that comes to mind? Well, you're breathing it in, so your lungs. Right, your lungs. Right, that's yeah. what you would think. And you're right, it, it, it controls your, it, you know, uh, it affects your breathing really significantly. We know that. People struggle with breathing. Um, mm-hmm. But the other things we know, when people get, um, when people get COVID, they get all these neurological um, kind of symptoms as well. So they get headaches or, uh, you know, lethargy, confusion, other kinds of impairments. Um, and they lose, you know, most notably when people have to be intubated, they lose um, autonomic respiratory control. So they can't breathe on their own. Yeah, that's why right? they would need ventilators and why we have an ICU problem, right? Right. So they're super recent. Um, these researchers were kind of thinking, OK, well, there's other neurological symptoms. And we know that COVID only binds to this thing called the ACE2 receptor. Um, and the mm-hmm. ACE2 receptor is basically just this protein that's in the cell membrane of all your cells um or at least in in multiple cell types um yeah uh and basically it's uh it it breaks down certain proteins and it helps your immune system function um but what these researchers did was they wanted to say okay where exactly is ace2 expressed so where could covid be binding um and take one guess where they found a ton of ace2 well, I know like it's in a lot of your epithelial cells, so all of your surface cells, maybe like other organ surfaces, maybe. Right. But one in particular related to the whole neurological uh, symptoms thing they found in the brain. They found oh a ton God. of ACE2 in the brain, in different regions <gasps> of your brain. Um, oh, my God. And it, it's especially you know notable in the regions of your brain that control breathing. Right. Jeez. That, yeah. So super interesting. Um, did they like find that the virus actually binds to the ACE receptor in the brain by any no, chance? No, that's the okay. that's the critical <laughs> thing. They but they have found that basically without fail, not these researchers, but just generally, we know COVID, um, mm-hmm. the virus itself will bind to ACE two. Where, wherever yeah. you give it ACE two, it binds. Um, so the thinking now is just kind of well, we might be seeing some issues in the brain. Like, COVID might be attacking our brain directly and not just our lungs. Oh my god, just thinking about it, it's like another added layer of how complex the pandemic, like, already is. Yeah, right? Anyway, but it gives us another kind of, um, gives us another area to consider when we're thinking about therapies and, you know, prevention, um, prevention. Yeah, because we don't know the long-term effects of COVID yet, because the pandemic was what it started in late 2019 so we don't know what's going to happen like a decade down the road or like 
two decades down the road, any long lasting yeah. effects it might have. Yeah, yeah, long COVID. That well, that's especially something relevant here, right? Because a lot of the long COVID uh, symptoms are things that are neurological, right? It's people who mm-hmm. are they continue to have these uh, these neurological um, effects going on. Yeah. And now talking about the pandemic in general, you know what? It makes me like want to go somewhere else, like away from Earth. And what better place than Mars? Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Okay, okay. What would you find about Mars? What's what's going on at Mars? So in Mars. OK, ever heard of this um, rover called Curiosity? I feel yes. like you heard yeah, about yeah. it in like science classes. Yeah, it was it's like also in, every... uh, it's in the Martian in the movie. It was a book. The book. I read the book. Okay, I read the book. I didn't just watch the movie. The Martian. It's in the Martian. Okay, or it's at least is that or it's Pathfinder. I'm not entirely sure which one, but go on. A while ago, um, they found that there are simple carbon isotopes found on the rocks in Mars. So what I mean by that, basically, what Curiosity does is that it goes around and roams around Mars and it collects and drills into rock samples. And then it has like an onboard built-in chemistry lab, basically, where it will process and analyze the content of the drilled rocks. And what back it up, found- Back up, back up, back okay. up. You're telling me they sent a rover to Mars that can do yes. that stuff on its own. And for yeah. some reason, I still had to learn how to do it on my own in a lab? Yeah, pretty much. Apparently, robots can do it. And what it basically found is this thing's called light isotopes of carbon. And okay, so basically there are two stable common, like stable isotopes for carbon, carbon 12 and carbon 13. So carbon 12, you basically find it in like most living things. And the reason why is that in carbon 13, since you have the extra neutron, the bonds are tougher. So you need to work extra hard to like break it and reform it and things like that. So because each molecule is heavier, correct? Yep. It's heavier and the bonds are stronger. So what happens is that, you know how life is lazy, basically. Everyone's lazy. Yes, so it's I'm more very easy. Lazy. It's easier to break carbon-12 than carbon-13. So through evolution, you would find that most biological creatures created by life and life, living organisms have a lot more carbon-12 production or have carbon-12 production over carbon-13 production. And these are some of the indicators that we use on Earth to detect ancient microbial life. Interesting. So, so we look for the lighter we look for the lighter version to say, okay, something was living here because this is the lazy version. Exactly. Yeah, it's a strong evidence on Earth, but not so much on Mars. Like, they found carbon-12, which is a good... If it happened on Earth, it's like, okay good, strong evidence that microbes were here. But in Mars, like, we're not actually entirely sure. But it's, like, a good first step. Like, even the researchers themselves were, like, very conservative about saying, like, oh, they could be life on Mars, or they could have been life on Mars. Maybe it was due to, like, stardust or, like, some other unorganic phenomenon. But it's very likely as well that it could be from ancient microbial life or some form of that in Mars basically interesting yeah do you hope there's life on mars are you a pro are you a pro extraterrestrial life or an anti-extraterrestrial life no i'm totally for it like i i honestly genuinely feel like at least some microbial life is out there like extraterrestrial microbes just imagine 
Oh, it's, you gotta read some Andy Weir. His latest book? Oh, that's terrifying. There's a whole thing about the new extraterrestrial uh, microbial life that, like, eats sunlight and could kill us all. Terrifying. Oh my god, um, honestly. So hopefully yeah. if we find microbial life, it doesn't eat the sun. That would be a huge plus, in my I mean, opinion. It uh, Well, I don't think it'll eat the sun, but you would think, like, it would use maybe the UV light or, like, sunlight. You know, like, how plants work in Earth, basically? They quote-unquote eat the sun yeah but the, the ones in andy weir's <laughs> book literally eat the sun like they go out in space and they just like surround the sun and eat the entire thing um Amazing. so let's hope it's not that but all this possible there might have been life on mars because of a robot and on that note let's talk about robots right oh, how's my segue cool. that's nice. okay so big thing big thing all right um, researchers basically just created analytical models to tell them when autonomous mobile robots are a good idea for various production lines. So we're talking about, you know, robots that are used in, like, warehouse factory production lines, right? Moving things around, lifting things, okay. putting things together. These robots can increase flexibility of production, so they can make the production line a lot more flexible, like if something goes wrong, you can work around it. Uh, and, you know, kind of decentralizes your network of production, right? So you can move yeah. around and you have a little more freedom. Um, and it makes things cheaper, right? Robots make oh, things yeah. cheaper. And on top of that, now robots are getting cheaper. Okay, So pretty cool that we know when to use the robots now. <laughs> we know better when they're effective. The robots are becoming cheaper. What do you think this means for people? Oh, my God. There's going to be a huge job loss. You people think? are going to be... Bad. Yeah. This is not part of the. This is not part of the discussion that was being had in the uh, in the in the uh, recent research that came out. They just developed a model to tell you when and when not autonomous mo mobile robots are you know a good idea. Um, okay. So you think there's going to be job loss? Yes, I think there's going to be job loss, or maybe like a shift of like jobs from like building things into like more so on managing. That's what I'm thinking, and this is happening yeah. everywhere too. I have a friend who's a uh, like a software engineer. Um, will not disclose name or employer <laughs> for privacy reasons. Um, but they basically build things. Um, they build, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The models. <laughs> they build a, they build systems, right? That kind of automate processes that humans oh. usually do, right? And they're, awesome. they have told me on different occasions, they are literally replacing people, right? They are trying to figure out which jobs are unnecessary. And mm -hmm. the first time they told me this, I had the exact same reaction you did. I was kind of like, oh my god, there's so many people losing jobs, this is terrible, I don't know, <laughs> like, why are you doing this? But the more I think about it, the more I kind of think, maybe you're right, like, maybe it'll just cause a shift in what humans are needed for, you know? Like, maybe it's just that yeah. now we don't have to do the more dangerous, repetitive kind of work anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you know what, though? It does require more specialized skill, like, you would need to, like... I don't know. In most parts right now, the people working on robots typically have like an engineering degree or like computer science degree. Yeah, I see so, what you mean. So there might be less like skill. There might be less unskilled jobs. Exactly. Yeah. And, and not everybody can afford the skills, right? Exactly. Now, if there was like a huge shift, let's say 20, like 100 years from now, where education becomes even more accessible and like, you know, a shift towards like an education centric country or like yeah. world where people yeah. actually cancel have those student loans education for all immediately exactly yeah well if we ever get there then you're right we will have nothing to worry about but in the meantime if you're looking for a job <laughs> in science literacy it's 
unlikely that's going to ever get automated. And you can check out our education section on our website coming soon Amazing. to an internet browser near you. Um, I think that brings us to a pretty natural end to our discussion. So, Tanish, thanks for joining me today. It's the first time we've ever had... Not the first time we've ever had two hosts, but it's the first time we've ever had two hosts in this capacity. I think it's a pretty successful episode, so... Well, it's a new show. Yeah. Uh, and thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world and the science news that you didn't know you needed. Uh, if you want to learn more about any of the things we've talked about today or any other topics we've talked about on this show, you can visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.